the Schweb, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast at the usual place online. And today is one of those rare days when we have a kind of proper big announcement to make vis-a-vis the study of Western Esotericism. We often talk about the study of Western Esotericism and reflect on it, but today we've got some, some news. And to help us convey this news, we're delighted to have Matt and Emily, or more specifically, Emily Jane C. Love, Senior Lecturer in Medieval Arabic Language and Literature at the University of Exeter. Yes, hello. Who has graced our podcast once before, and a gentleman who has graced our podcast once before, Mr. Matt Melvin Kushki, uh, Associate Professor of Islamic History at University of South Carolina, a man who knows a thing or two about magic, history of science, and empire. Thank you both for coming to talk to us. So, fabulous to be here. Yeah, a pleasure. So, you each have a story to tell, and then you have a joint story to tell. So maybe we we'll start with the individual stuff. Matt, what's what's going on with University of South Carolina and this new program? It's really a bolt out of blue. Um, and much to my surprise, we now suddenly have a, a magic MA where we had none before at the University of South Carolina. Our program is very focused on strengths in Southern history, uh, African diaspora, Latin American history, and uh, history of science and technology. So we have these strengths, but you know, magic was not certainly part of it. We now just in this last year got the critical faculty mass, and I proposed it to my departments, and it was declared and deemed that magic is the future, right, of our, <laughs> of our program, just uh, harnessing our current faculty expertise. Right on. Um, and then also internationally, obviously with Emily, we've you know we've been hashing this out for the last couple of years really, uh, dreaming about it, and suddenly the stars aligned, and I was authorized to send out a tweet, and that tweet went viral uh, on TikTok, of all places, I'm not on TikTok, in an incredibly, well, weird way, right? It was wonderfully weird, um, a big theme uh, of our, you know, program going forward, the weird and the wondrous, right, and, and the traumatic in and, and science and religion and empire. It's all intertwined, um, but and in TikTok a, is maybe a perfect <laughs> right. part of that. Well, you know, global empire as in science and magic and all that, you know, that matrix there. So on that strength, we got hundreds and hundreds of emails and just insane interest all over the world. And we realized we're sitting on gold. Uh, I mean, my my department and uh, my college uh, at USC realized, and uh, we were authorized to proceed and got an unprecedented historic number of MA applications uh, in the program. Just wonderful, all over the world, just such excitement, you know, people at the PhD level with languages, and uh, yeah, the rest is history, really. And we made nine offers, all of which were accepted. Um, so we're starting with nine. This, uh, so this 2024 year. academic year? Uh, well, starting this fall. Yeah, 2024. So the first uh, cohort is coming in, nine. But yeah, we really envision it, uh, envisage it as a, uh, what we're calling the Magic Seminar. Look for it themagicseminar.org, where, you know, we have the profiles of all our students and their, their projects. Some are practitioners, others are, you know, more historians. Some are both. Uh, most they're, are both, both. they're all going to have to become both, right? Right. It is a history degree, right? Um, but most of them do not have history backgrounds, anthropology, religion, you know, Ritual drumming, shamanic drumming—it's um, uh, all over the all over the uh, board. So we want to keep it very, very broad. History as a as a big tent container for every discipline, uh, every approach, um, every sort of artistic expression. We're dedicated to uh, fit with the department's strengths. So all of our students are empowered to do whatever it is they want to do for two years. Uh, we're quite unique in the sense that 
to fully funded MA. Internationally, this is very rare, obviously, fully funded MA, whereby you, you know, get your stipend through TAing in a variety of fields. So you get work experience, you can do whatever you want for, for two years, we're all here you know, to support you. And uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those blissful, serendipitous things um, can be transformative. Um, we then encourage you to go off and do whatever. It's not necessarily only for feeding into a PhD program, although we certainly hope to infect uh, all the elite uh, PhD programs worldwide with magic. So sounds like a pretty good deal. If anyone is listening to this who has an inkling that they might like to get involved in the academic study of magic, <clears throat> that sounds like maybe a, a place to check out, a, to add to what we already have in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. which doesn't specialize in magic, be it said, although it's a great place to study magic. Cool. So, Emily Seelove, what's your story? Okay, so this really is a brand new announcement. You heard it here first. The University of Exeter is launching a new MA in Magic and Occult Sciences in 2024. Bum, bum, bum! So the University of Exeter has a sort of spooky concentration of colleagues across various departments who study these topics from every angle imaginable. So any way you want to define magic, our door is open. I think you can find a supervisor to suit you, including uh, a gentleman who studies illusion. Yeah. Uh, I study medieval Arabic grimoires. We have people studying early modern witchcraft. One of the most exciting things about this current MA is you can either do your dissertation in the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies, where I am housed, and that is for if you want to employ a text-based or social sciences approach. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the Middle East, though I think that our department is the perfect place to center this MA for, for reasons that I hope Earl will ask me to explain later. But you can also do your dissertation in the drama department, and that's if you would like to employ a more practice-based or performative methodology in your dissertation. And then we'll have a core module that brings everybody together, where you'll meet all kinds of people studying magic and occult sciences from many different angles, using both academic rigor and creativity. That That is our vision. So yes, that is the announcement. And, and I should just add, all of these modules are already running at Exeter. It's, Exeter is simply an exciting place to study magic, and this is taking advantage of the fact that we have a, an international reputation and a fun concentration of people studying these topics already. So you can come take advantage of all the modules that are being offered across multiple departments like classics, English, history, sociology that pertain to magic and also come together on the core module to have sort of cohesion to the program as well. Brilliant. Why is the Institute for Arab and Islamic Studies a good place to study magic? Well, I'm obviously... I mean, what does Islam have to do with magic, first of all? (laughs) Um, Okay, so my own research is on a 13th century Arabic grimoire. So you could say that I'm a little bit biased, but in my opinion, medieval Arabic and Islamic occult literatures are the crossroads in the history of magic. They are influenced by and playing with all of the ancient traditions of magic, the the Greek, Roman, and Egyptian, and Babylonian. They are in dialogue with the Indian, Tantric, and Buddhist traditions. 
They are deeply influential on the European tradition. Some of the most famous European grimoires, such as the Picatrix, are direct translations of the Arabic. So anything that you want to study having to do with the history of the occult and magic, you really need to know at least a little bit about the way that these traditions have passed through and been adapted and adopted and made even more beautiful by the Islamic and Arabic tradition. And I mean, I think this is also a little bit about the University of Exeter's goal to decolonize the study of the Middle East. This is putting the Middle East in the center of the picture. It's not a marginal subject. It, it's, it's the middle of everything. Um, so this is the, the hub from which we launch our study of the occult, no matter how you're, how you're studying it. Funny that. It, so you're basically saying that the center of Eurasia is central to the study of Eurasian cultural development. What a strange and bizarre <laughs> idea. Shouldn't, shouldn't London be the center, or for Paris, maybe? Right. Of I'm... the West? Well, I guess, <clears throat> I, I, I guess the obvious answer to that is no. I'm, so the... <laughs> yes. Um... Well, I like to think about, um, you know, as I've said on your, your Vaunted and Story podcast uh, a few years ago, you know, I like to think of it, Islam is the West to, to shake it up, to recenter, decenter, but more importantly, recenter geographically, culturally, textually, in terms of textual production. So, if History Islam, of ideasically. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So if Islam is the West, and that massively rejiggers our, well, our scholarship, and if you know, magic is the West, Islam is magic, and you, know, you have this confluence whereby magic becomes a tool for the decolonization of Islam, and Islam, and especially Islamic magic, becomes a tool for the decolonization of Western intellectual and imperial history. Like it. Now, you've each told us a story. Let me summarize the story back to you and tell me if I get it right. If someone is thinking of getting involved in studying magic in an academically informed, high-level, historicized way, they now have, like, two new options as long as they speak English, basically. Exeter and South Carolina, both of which are pretty juicy options, both of which are going to have their own curricula, but also, because this is an MA, this is going to be involved finding the right supervisor, making a research proposal, coming up with a really cool project, and diving into it, as well as studying with other, uh, you know, studying, doing classes and studying with other people. Is that a decent summary? Yeah, uh, 15 to 20 supervisors with a wide range of specialties. Uh, you create the topic that you want to study uh, while receiving guidance from the whole team, making sure that you have the proper grounding and methodology. That sort of sums it up. I, I, yeah. is, is that how yours works as well, Matt? It's a bit different since it's a two-year program, and again, uh, fully funded through TA ships. You will be much more um, working at the life of the department uh, as a whole. We have about six to seven faculty now um, in this area um, already signed up to uh, to mentor. You can do it solo. You can do it. You know, you can form your own team. I work on history, you know, early modern Persian, it's history of science and technology and empire, uh, as mentioned. Um, but we also do South Asia, medieval and Renaissance, uh, Mediterranean, uh, both Jewish and Islamic. Um, we have the only uh, Kabbalah course in uh, North America or in the world um, that does half Islamic, half Jewish approach to Kabbalah. So this is going to be one of our strengths. We already have two students coming in this fall um, working on that, both Arabic and Hebrew in the Mediterranean um, on the topic of Kabbalah and Lettrism. So this is kind of a, a unique strength that we have. 
as well as you know grimoires, uh, Islamic magic, Buni in particular. Uh, you know, uh, I can list our, our uh, faculty in those, these areas: uh, Hindu astrology, yoga in South Asia, but like early modern South Asia. It's all all over the board. So we we envisage it under the large categories currently of history of science and technology, global history, and we're starting a history of religions focus as well. So concentration is magic and occult science, especially if you want to focus on the history of science and technology aspect or global history. You can just do whatever you want, at, you know, from whatever disciplinary di- uh, direction you'd like to take. Um, everything is really represented, much more so than at Exeter, uh, hence our close uh, dialogue with each other over the yeah, last few years. Um, and before we get to the close dialogue, Emily, tell me, a, give, give me a run-through of some of the people who work in Exeter. You've already mentioned a few things. Maybe the thing to emphasize that I think is potentially super innovative and fruitful in what you're doing is Brian Brown mm-hmm. in theater studies <laughs> is on board. And so the, the practice-based research side of things opens up, which a lot of people who are interested in some way or other in testing the scholarly versus practitioner divide mm-hmm. that has been so policed in our field, the field of let's say, the study of Western esotericism. Yeah. Um, this might be a, a gateway to like really, really innovative research in stuff like, for example, if you study ritual, if you study magic from the perspective of actually doing stuff, which after all is in any definition of magic is what magic is supposed to be, right? Practice-based research could be the bomb. Yeah. I think whether you end up taking the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies dissertation or the drama dissertation, the trends that you're describing are going to be really important to this MA. In my opinion, the study of magic and occult sciences is simply the future of the humanities in general because of its potential to responsibly explore alternative epistemologies, embodied sources of knowledge, together with the traditional sort of Western philological methods that you know can be our anchor while we try to get a little bit more brave about who we're listening to, how we're listening to them. Um, again, with the decolonizing of knowledge, taking people seriously, not accusing people, pointing fingers, saying we're, you know, we, we study Western science and you're superstitious. That's an old narrative. And recognizing that is not enough. We have to act on it. And I feel like both of our MAs are really taking a hands-on approach to that urgent problem that's facing the academy today. Uh, same, uh, uh, just as uh, proof of the pudding, um, half of our incoming uh, uh, cohort of nine students uh, would consider themselves practitioners. So, so half practitioners. of nine is 4.5. <laughs> So we wear various hats, don't we? That would now, definitely have to yeah. be a practitioner if, they, if a half a person <laughs> can, can show up. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is the thing. I think more, uh, you know, folks that were coming out of the closet, as it were, it, it really was the TikTok phenomenon, right? People are very hungry for this. Practitioners, but, you know, with a scholarly background, right? Again, it's all over the board. I'm an Islamicist, but it's not Islam-specific in any way. Two of our, our um, faculty members, uh, myself and Noah Gardner, are obviously Islamicists, but we are big into UFOlogy. You want to do UFOlogy? Do UFOlogy. Do, you know, you want to make your own tarot deck? Do that. I mean, you can get an MA doing your own tarot deck, for example, right? Um, if you do it well. If you do it well. Obviously, within a historicized, 
and you know a rigorous you know, framework. Yeah, it's good to make that explicit because to some listeners who are hip to what we study and how we study it and so on and so forth are going to be saying like, yeah, this is all cool. I, I dig it. And then other people are going to be going, oh, it's it's a bunch of MA programs in, in stupid stuff and it's going to be like a fake degree and da da da. So pointing out that the historicist and, and something you emphasize a lot, the philological rigor mm -hmm. is first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, why would you bother with a degree anyway, right? Yeah. Or just You can study magic in your living room, but in terms of method, in terms of quality of work, all that kind of stuff. Well, also at USC, you can um, get training in religious studies or in anthropology or right. in drama or in theater or what have you. You can you certainly branch out and bring in whatever disciplines you wish, but it is a history MA. And for uh, those of you concerned that magic will look appear on your transcript and your parents might find out, it will not. It will just say a MA in history from the University of South Carolina. Honestly, I don't know if that's such a concern. I feel like the people who are still afraid of the word magic are a little bit behind the times mm. because I'm hearing more and more that, you know, respect at museums and libraries and other cultural institutions are realizing how important these topics are, especially to mm. the younger generation. Mm -hmm. Launching exhibitions, thinking of alternative therapies that might incorporate some of the ideas. So I actually, my personal opinion, and I haven't done like the market research behind it, is that this is going to be great for people looking for careers in a variety of, of mm. professions. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's also it's maybe worth thinking about if you're if you're young and you're looking for a career that all the sensible careers that your parents thought you should do, like becoming an accountant, they're all going to be AI out of existence in the next five years. So maybe you should think about doing something that AI can't do. Yeah. Like, studying magic. Well, well, history of magic in particular, right? History is one of those things that is not going away. In fact, will you know, may well experience a, a renaissance under the AI impact uh, as people become starved for truth and meaning, you yeah. know, the humanities in general. So this is, you know, again, magic, you know, will save the humanities. Not exactly, but magic, Islamic magic will save the world. Not exactly what we're saying, but we clearly put our thumb on some pulse or some uh, some you know open nerve in in our cultures this is a way to think about what it means to be human and mm. what it means to be a human in relation to the other beings that we share this world with mm -hmm. a, a dire question our life depends on getting it right mm -hmm. speaking of relation let's talk about the the joint story between you two guys like what are the links between these two programs well, okay, so the link between the two programs is still an intention, and it's in the works, but, um, inshallah, if we launch our one-year MA at the University of Exeter starting in 2024, then the hope is to create an option where you could then go on to do a second year, so then mm. have, instead of a one-year MA, have a two-year MA, and that second year would be spent in South Carolina, and during that second year, you would get the teaching experience that Matt described. So you'd, you'd start in the UK, you'd end in the United States. And we've also talked about working this into the way that we frame our topics. So in the UK section, maybe you can study the history of magic, you can soak up all the lovely medieval atmosphere that we have all around us in the city of Exeter and the surroundings. And then at the, in America, and again, this is just an idea that we've had, sort of look at the way that magic is evolving today and the, in the so-called new world. Um, what do you think, Matt, of that idea? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's a win-win. And, you know, 
anyone on either side of the pond will have full access to the accumulated faculty expertise and, and, and uh, guidance. Superb. Um, and also summer symposia. So like yeah. even if you spend most of your time on uh, one side and, and less on the other, you know, we all come together more as a, you know, a symposium, right? A seminar, a magic seminar, um, really. Each, perhaps each summer, we, we haven't worked out any of these details. Yeah. Obviously, again, it's happening so rapidly. And, and you could potentially be supervised in person by the institution that you're in that year, mm-hmm. online by the institution across the sea, because right. and I'm just this thinking, is the age of Zoom. I'm just thinking, um, if someone gets really enthused by this, interview and go straight onto the website for University of Exeter, website for University of South Carolina, and they go, I really love the work of um, Ahmed Albuni, but what I'd love to do is some practice-based research on Albuni. Could it be arranged where you have joint supervision from Noah Gardner and Brian Brown? two different universities. That is the idea. I should I should again stress that this is all in the works. Yeah. So there's definitely an Exeter MA launching in 2024. There's definitely a South Carolina MA already underway. Mm-hmm. To join them together is our dream for 2025. Okay. And I'll just emphasize to the, the young, aspiring students out there, if you look at these institutional boundaries, the attitude you want to take is, this is my project, I need these academics, and you guys need to make this work for me, and you can usually make things work like that. So if you have the two perfect supervisors, if you need Emily Seelove and Matt Melvin Kushki to supervise your thing, it'll, you'll be able to make it happen, even if it doesn't say that on the website yet. That's true. I, we have, you know, one great thing about the study of magic and occult sciences is the scholars who study it have a really um, warm and supportive, for the most part, with some some exceptions, network. Um, yeah, so agreed. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's a super friendly, non-pretentious uh, field. I think maybe partly because so many people who've done incredible work, uh, I think of Claire Fanger here, had to basically do it off their own back for decades because they because no one wanted to hear the word magic mm. and so like okay I'm just gonna have to invent superb scholarship from the ground up and do it myself because you guys suck so um, that leads to a certain camaraderie and a certain support for the young up and comers and stuff that you don't always get in a in an academic field exactly you're entering into a group of uh, an international sort of magic club <laughs> I mean, a family it. of weirdos <laughs> you know, and of this weirdos, is yeah. and the weird and you know the weird is really front and center and you know that's we're used to you know uh, like medievals you're used to being marginalized it's kind of a nice comfortable comfortable zone uh, where you can just let your freak flag fly exactly yeah. um, but you know also get legitimate degrees Right, especially you know in the case of a history MA, you can do anything you want. You go to business school afterwards if you like. Right, it it, it flies with anything, so you can use it as camouflage in the uh, less weird realms of you know late capitalist modernity that is falling <laughs> apart all around our ears. Mm. If, you wish. <laughs> if you wish, or you can just be as like just nerd out as much as you want. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, you still get the credit for it, uh, which is what brings us, uh, I guess, to why we chose magic. Which is not a term that we often use in our school. I mean, it's, it's a polemical term, especially in Arabic and Persian. Um, it gets less polemical with the centuries, but it's not something I don't think we either thought we were going to. We sort of like organically fell into it, and we mm-hmm. kind of kept more and more 
uh, thinking of it as the it's just the magic MA. Yeah, we call it the magic MA. It is sort of about reclaiming a term that has been used as a term of disparagement. Mm -hmm. um, or just in scholarship used as a uh, locus for endless debates about terminology and trying to come up with a, a kind of watertight definition that we can use as scholars, which I think is a doomed proposition by the nature of the beast. That's like magic is slippery by its nature. It's exactly. like if, if you're not if your definition doesn't include a certain tricksterishness and the ability to go for someone to, to object and say, ah, but this is also magic and you say, yes, you're right. Exactly. You know, that if it doesn't include that, it's not a it's not a proper definition of magic. You can't define magic, but let's say a description of magic. It's right? why it's so perfect for for creating this kind of interdisciplinary vision of the humanities. It is the perfect place for all different departments and methodologies to come together because it's an inherently liminal, traveling between borders type of word. Mm -hmm. um, and the door is wide open how you want to define it, really. Especially given that uh, magic comes from Iran, um, you know, it's a natural fit for me. No, but uh, yes. joking aside. So listeners may, might wish to uh, go back to episode <laughs> episode six of the Schweb where we interview Daniel Ogden and actually talk about the paleo-Iranian roots of the <laughs> Greek word magos, which is where this term magia comes into Greek, then Latin, hence magic. Uh, there's a whole very fascinating history there. And that's, so when Matt says, magic is Iranian... That's what he's referring to in a kind of jokingly shorthand polemical way. But Iran being the you know the sort of central of the Afro-Eurasian ecumen, like you know economically, politically, it's you know geographically and all this, it kind of fits as well. I yeah. mean, fine. I'm an Iranologist, but I like it uh, because it's always been such a contested liminal term, right? Um, half of my sources hate it, and half of them valorize it. We're following the steps of uh, my early modern occult philosophers who say, look, magic is just another natural episode in science. It's fine. It's not our main business, but it's, it's fine. And they use it as a tool, and it's seized upon by anti-occultist polemicists um, in order to uh, delegitimize the weird, um, right? And the, the, the wondrous, which is the central ethos, right? In, in, in certainly in the early modern Persian world, it's the weird and the wondrous. It's the traumatically so, you know, um, think of alien abductions. They're weird and traumatically wondrous. So this also gets us in, into, um, you know, modernity uh, quite easily. It's not, it's a medieval thing where, you know, a bunch of like pro and anti-occultists are wrangling over some random term that we call in English magic. I think that's exactly why so many people who are interested in the study of magic are interested also in feminist or ecological mm. radical reimaginings of society. It's mm. a great site from which to launch these sort of reexaminations of our old belief systems. Mm -hmm. We get into to practice uh, where, you know, uh, I really do insist, and again, from history of science context, you got to get into the mindset of a Francis Bacon doing, you know, real science. Geomancy. He's doing it, right? So you've got to, in my classes, you've got to do geomancy. Okay, too. so back up yeah. there. Like, like, expand that. That's clear to me. But mm -hmm. Francis Bacon, mm -hmm. father or grandfather of what's called empirical scientific method, because mm -hmm. he, he kind of lays out this program for empiricism and uh, how we can, you know, like what the knowledge claims of uh, experiment are and what the knowledge claims of rational reflection are and all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Right. He's seen as a kind of grandfather figure by uh, what is now known as science. You mean he was doing divination? 
as with most of these heroes and saints and martyrs of science TM, from Galileo and Copernicus and, and uh, Kepler and, and all of these folks, Newton, obviously, um, they're, uh, they're raving occultists. They're raving occultists. What is, and again, in, in science, right, Not uh, as opposed to scientism, um, you are seeking the traumatic weird. That is where you find the gaps in what in nature or whatever. So dark matter and dark energy. Yeah, it's all dark, example. which is to say occult. Fine, it's it's just a language game, right? Um, but it, but it's uh, also traumatic. Because it's very traumatic. It's taken, so you, it's taken what was everyone was getting comfortably settling into as the standard hmm. cosmological model, and go, actually, it's ninety percent wrong. Right. Is it, you so know? you is about traumatizing nature, alchemy being extremely traumatic to everyone, um, and you know you easily poison yourself uh also the imagery right imagery but like it's it really is about uh traumatizing yourself artificial trauma you as a subject is equally important in the magical context right so it makes it spreads personhood across the cosmos we're all people here right trees rocks plants um, and so on spaces moments in time these are all people persons right and persons have well rights i suppose so it's a way through decolonizing the colonization of nature as this object to be raped and pillaged effectively and traumatized massively. Um, science is large-scale industrial trauma to almost all people. And when you bring sort of the, uh, the genesis of the scientific method back into this conversation, why did we go this way? Um, you realize people like Francis Bacon are extremely interested in diving into gaps in reality through sciences like geomancy, my favorite, you know, it's earth worship in that sense. So why does he elevate that? Because he says, because precisely it is so, it is so artificial as a mathematical science it allows you entrance into and beyond the matrix in a way. I find this is a very inspiring. Uh, Geomancy is undergoing revival today. Uh, in the Islamic speak. world? No, no, I mean in the English-speaking world, the English right. Anglosphere. Um, so there's a, a big demand, especially among Druids and, and others. So I find this is a really interesting way for a sort of eco-Islamo-magico, you know, animism. Right um, to to really come, uh, come back into uh, scholarly discourse and decolonial discourse. I like it, and you know, animism uh, I think is another term. I've just having interviewed Huna uh, Yarnu on um, Nordic animism as a methodology, as an academic methodology. Mm. It sounds crazy, but then if you talk to a proponent of philosophic panpsychism from the you know philosophy department at oxford university or someone from some very theory laden uh department in the u.s looking at the new materialism and you de-jargonify what they're saying this is the living world full of agents that can talk to you and you can talk to them and mm -hmm. it's a you might call it a magical worldview and then the charge will inevitably be broad that it's oh this is just more of the humanities being stupid and wasting everyone's money until first of all you read the work and you go oh my god this is actually rigorous as hell you know one of the main pushes towards panpsychism in the analytic philosophy field is to try to save materialism because you can't have materialist mm -hmm. account of consciousness unless you mm -hmm. have panpsychism this mm -hmm. is the argument 
and this work is just generally really good and really interesting and um, probably onto something, I would say. Not because, and I really don't think it's because we want to do some kind of like weird wish fulfillment, like let's pretend the fairies are real type thing in a bad sense, but because it can offer the fairies are real in yeah, some sense. Exactly. Yeah. And it offers solutions to the hard problem of consciousness that materialism doesn't. So it's better yeah. better suited for understanding the world in a lot of ways. Well, the materialism's answer to the hard problem of consciousness is like you don't know. give us a hundred years more of dissecting brains and scanning them, and we'll 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 have the answer we promise. So it's basic. Funnily enough, it's. It's not a scientific... So, epiphenomenological account of a materialist uh, arising in consciousness doesn't fit the criteria of science at all. It's actually what people used to deride as magical thinking. It's like, well, it just happens. There's this thing called the brain, and then from this arrangement of stuff, you have this other thing that has nothing to do with an arrangement of stuff that just happens by magic. Which is why magic is a, a signal of an ethical commitment. Like, like it, it's like magic. Magical thinking will save the world. Like, I, it's not like this is this is uh, this discuss is, right. <laughs> magical thinking will save the world in that you have to treat everything as well, alive as a person. Um, the only problem is that animism has been used, especially in extremely you know Protestant missionary contexts, to demonize Islam in particular. Uh, the Library of Congress is organized according to the idea of Islam as animism, which is. Amazing, right? But if you want to decolonize Islam, for example, or just no human knowing in general, um, this is a good way to start. But it's not in academic discourse; it's a slur. Um, magic is equally a slur, but you know it's absolutely legible to well the general uh, public um, and offensive to exactly these older uh, narratives of history of science. When you do magic, you're not just doing history of science, you're doing the future of science, and you're actually getting into the cutting edge of our physics today, where materialism is still, you know, widespread. But physicists, uh, philosophers of science, uh, theologians, uh, parapsychologists, obviously, but, like, physicists are priests of science today. When I've discussed it, it's like, okay, fine, we're doing magic. We're totally fine with that term. We don't care. We're into the weird. We're into trying, you know, the, the interstices of reality, the dark right. stuff, the occult stuff. That's that's what we want. Um, I agree that it seems like people pushing the boundaries of physics and neuroscience mm. are very easy to talk to about these exactly. things. Exactly, historians not. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> people who are so in love with the old stories that they don't want to let them go have a problem with it. But people doing cutting-edge research about those topics, which, of course, I don't personally understand, mm. just talk to me quite comfortably about it. And the mm. other thing that I'd like to mention from my amateurist perspective that's going on in the sciences at the University of Exeter is a lot of exciting work on the potential of psychedelic therapies. Mm. And it's really bringing these panpsychist worldviews into sometimes not entirely comfortable contact with a scientific materialist worldview as they attempt to turn these drugs into therapies hmm. while confronting the fact that a lot of the experiences that they allow people to have bring them face to face with the seemingly noetic reality of panpsychism or animism uh, staring them in the face mm -hmm. talking to them in the form of their houseplant or whatever um, there are some exciting things going on beyond the study of magic as well which are just 
reinforcing what we've been finding in the Center for Magic and Esotericism, that it is time to re-examine some of these kind of basic materialist assumptions that we've been working with. Well, and this is also tying directly into Jeff Kripal's category of the superhumanities and also the entheogenic humanities. Um, I mean, we're in contact with him, and he's very excited about all of this stuff. This is Jeffrey Kripal, scholar of um, the weird and wonderful, who works at Rice University in Texas. Would mm-hmm. that be the guy we're talking Absolutely, about? Absolutely, yeah. Please continue. Uh, yeah, so if you imagine the superhumanities, not just as you know the salvation of the humanities, but uh, positing it as the equal um, and necessary spouse of physics, right? You do the uh, bodies and we do consciousness. You know, you need us. They're bodies and minds, right? Mm. So if we position ourselves as not, uh, you know, hangers-on that are you know, only here in the academy because we're basically free, right? And so we're tolerated because we're basically free and we make a lot of money for our uh, respective institutions. No, we are equal partners. Right. They need us for executing mind just as much as we need them for excavating matter, if you want to put it in dualistic terms. Hmm. Life is really, really fucking weird. <laughs> Life is really fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> Who can deny it? You know, maybe some tools to address that problem are being offered here. Tools for addressing the weirdness of life. Yeah. I think those are, those are going to be valuable tools because denying the weirdness of life is both uh, boring and also... Reductionist. Reductionist, such that you're not really approaching life as it is, because it's weird as hell. Yeah. Right? This is the great thing about Eric Davis's um, high weirdness, isn't it? It shows how simply dismissing something as, oh, well, that's chemicals in your brain or whatever, that's actually not an explanation for the essential, inexplicable weirdness that haunts us on a day-to-day basis. And well, I think sitting with the uncertainty instead of dismissing it is is part of what we're trying to get at. Yeah, his methodological uh, tool laid out in that book of weird naturalism as a, a frame for work in the humanities or in sciences, I think is a very useful tool. Mm-hmm. So you have an experience that's very odd. You don't have to... Say you see some fairies to talk about something very topical because we were just uh, chatting about seeing fairies yesterday with a gentleman who's seen loads of fairies. You don't have to posit that fairies exist as biological entities or that they exist in this way or that way or the other way. What you have to do is take the phenomena that you actually saw some fairies, right? And just chalk that up to the weirdness of life. I mean, if that's the best you can do. If you can somehow do a interview a fairy and get a biological analysis or, you know, get, you know, like get the fairy to tell you what they are made of, then Mm -hmm. that's great too. But if you can't, and very often it seems to me that the weirdness of life addresses us in ways precisely where we cannot come to some kind of fixed judgment about what the hell just happened, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You have to find a way to accept that for what it is rather than just pretending it didn't happen. Well, and still continue to talk to other humans. So you see right. weird naturalism. Or I'm not saying there's angels, I'm not saying there's fairies, I'm not saying any of that stuff, but I, I mean, I just had this weird experience. That's what I'm saying. Isn't life weird? Yes, it is. <laughs> well, and this is where, again, we came to magic. Uh, so polemicized in our respective fields, but, you know, the master category for me, increasing, I'm increasingly convinced, you know, is, is weird. These are the weird sciences, the occult sciences, the ulum gariba, uh, Garib is weird. I mean, it's also rare and difficult and foreign and Indian and, and uh, all these things. 
uh, elite. Uh, it's, it's, it's glossed as elite in, in, in my early modern Persian sources uh, frequently. But it is always with the wonder and the weird. Because it's like other, these, isn't it, really? Well, it's, it's the valorization of the weirdness of the other, which is what we need now. Right, um, you know, it's not going to dissolve all borders and you know, kumbaya, you know, but uh, it is an ethical imperative that my sources certainly do recognize in constructing flourishing, radically ecumenical societies. In some ways, more ecumenical than than ours today. I do just want to come back to my sort of conservative grounding and methodology again, mm. though. Which Probably not is, a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, I think it's very important to realize when you just open the door to all manner of weirdness, mm. not just nice fairies come in, you know, there's, 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 all, there's also room for these things to go in dangerous, violent, racist mm. uh, directions. Mm. So it's important, I think, to start from tried and tested methods. Mm. For me, that's looking at dusty old manuscripts, looking the words up in as many books as I can, um, dictionaries. I mean, this really is a traditional sort of approach that I adopt first and foremost in my research. It's really only at the limits of those methods, and the limits, you reach them very quickly, you reach questions you can't answer very quickly, that I want to, instead of just shutting the conversation down and sticking them in a footnote, to open myself up to listening mm. in embodied ways, to uh, practicing with my colleagues from many different departments on how to dwell in those spaces of uncertainty and see if we can't find ourselves thinking outside the box a little better than we have been in the academy recently. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much interdisciplinarity as, yeah, what would you call it? It's, I mean, we, we, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice word. It's a collaboration. Word. It's a collaboration, yeah. Uh, radical collaboration. A radical know. collaboration, um, yeah. It's a, it's a conversation that takes place not only between our students and colleagues, but between, you know, the past and the present, various cultures, and sure, the other beings that seem to inhabit our universe. To, to get back to the actual MA, mm. part of what you're doing is, I mean, a big part of what you're doing, actually, is learning a traditional humanities discipline, mm -hmm. uh, the study of material culture, archaeology, you know, very rigorous performance disciplines that have been developed within the drama department, social sciences, philology, that is the grounding of this MA. It's just simply not going to place as many restrictions on where you go in your more creative and liminal moments, and as well as in your interdisciplinary studies. And I mean, I guess it's also just not going to make fun of you for wanting to write a dissertation on fairies if you like. Quite the opposite. Matt Melvakushki and Emily Love. Stay esoteric. <laughs> Thank you, you too. <laughs> Very good.